think I'm curious too, what it, what is it going to do for all of us individually, but what main things will kind of coalesce and what will we see? Will, will we be more scared coming out of this? Will we feel triumphant coming out of this? I mean, I know it'll be a mixture, but sometimes there's like a, a primary theme that shows up or a couple primary responses and that I don't really know. But I think some people will come out ready to hug and some people will come out being like, I don't know if I want to hug. Welcome to the Faith Without Fear podcast, a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Redlands, California. This podcast is hosted by Senior Pastor Sean Zambros and Associate Pastor Nick Quint. In this episode, they are joined by Dr. Jackie Williams-Reed, Associate Professor of Counseling and Family Sciences at Loma Linda University, to talk about anxiety, faith, therapy, and finding God in the midst of all of that. So actually, that'd be a good way to start. In thinking about um, just the new way of living, I suppose, it almost feels like it's it's not the new way of living. It feels like we've been living this way for a very long time. Um, you're a teacher. You're, you're involved in all this. How has your schedule just been, I mean, as, as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air once said, been flipped, turned upside down? Like, how, how, is, how, is, how is life going for you? Because at least for Pastor Sean and I, it's been just crazy, like having to learn a whole new way of doing church. I imagine it's extra crazy for you dealing with with school and all of that and just teaching like so how's that gone for you yeah it's like a mixture of some things have been upended and some things have really like calmed down you know because some things you can't continue to do the old way so you have more space in your schedule and then other things need a total rethinking so there's more work to do so it's sort of this weird it's not like one pat answer you know it sort of has done all sorts of things to the schedule but we had already some of our programs had already started to go online so our first, my first time teaching online was last quarter. So I did a whole course um, online last quarter with Zoom and all that. So my learning curve for a lot of this stuff happened last quarter, which I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you know, it was like a week before spring break, and this was happening. And so you, it was pretty quick that it was like, oh, we will not be having a spring break, you know, we have to like get these classes online that we're going to be face to face. Um, So prepping the classes that were face to face to online, some of them can stay similar, because if they're just discussion based, and you have a small class, you can discuss on zoom, but if they're bigger classes, then you can't have as easy of a discussion on zoom. So you may have to do new assignments. Um, so recreating assignments. And then honestly, there's a lot of, um, you know, anxiety, student anxiety, student concerns. And so there's that balance too of like, do we proceed business as usual? You know, we have accreditation to be accountable to, or do we provide sort of some grace and some flexibility and how do we balance that? And so um, I think that has been a big kind of mental load and emotional load is trying to figure out how much to take care of students and how much to um, encourage students to keep going, keep, you know, pr- pushing hard. It's a, I'm in a PhD program, so um, there's a lot of pushing um, and high expectations. So it's hard to balance all of that. And that's been a big part of the change, I think. Yeah. And so your specialty is, is what specifically? And then kind of what is your kind of your work in this sort of area of uh, therapy and, and all of this? What's, what's kind of your, your specialty and what you're kind of working on? Uh, My specialty is called medical family therapy. And so I work with families who have an illness, a medical illness of some kind. And so I teach a lot of medical family therapy courses. And then I also specialize in qualitative research. So I teach the qualitative research courses. I do the spirituality practicum, which we'll be talking about. Um, And I've taught some other different courses about 
diversity and, and some other things. But for the most part, I'm medical, um, qualitative research, and spirituality. Okay, so let's just get right into that because I've just I, I read the paper you sent me and we're talking just in general. I'm like, man, I don't understand any of this, but this is so so fascinating. So could you maybe explain just bird's eye level for for those of us like me who who read it or who have at least a little knowledge? What is what is the relationship, generally speaking, maybe in the field or in just kind of everyday life between therapy and spirituality? What are kind of what's kind of the big picture view of that? Like, how do they kind of relate to one another or do they and uh or is this kind of a newer thing where spirituality is being incorporated into therapy and and that sort of stuff i don't know I'm, yeah it's just so interesting yeah well there's a few ways to look at that in some ways a lot of people a lot of religious people a lot of christians in the united states go into therapy and there are a lot of therapy programs in religious schools, in seminaries. Um, and there are a few main bodies of therapy, I should say, like mental health treatment. There's psychology, um, social work, counseling, and family therapy. Those are the main, there's four main disciplines. Um, so you can be either of those um, four main disciplines. And then there are either, it gets a little even more confusing. There are some programs that combine two disciplines. So you can, you can graduate with like both social work and counseling or something like that. So um, it can kind of vary. But so there's four disciplines. And so they all integrate it differently. And then with each, within each discipline, to my knowledge, it's not integrated. Spirituality is not integrated consistently. It's one of those areas that sometimes I say it's like when you go to family dinners and you're not supposed to talk about like, no one talks about politics, um, religion, or sex, right? It's like, it's one of those areas that even therapists aren't sure about talking about. A lot of programs don't train specifically in spirituality or, or religious diversity. And so you get a lot of therapists who don't get training in it. And so don't ever ask to ask about it, don't want to talk about it. And then you get therapists who are coming into therapy because they kind of feel called or it's a religious belief of theirs to help people. And so they want to talk about it, but then they've never been trained how to talk about it in the context of a therapeutic relationship um, and their professional role, not just their personal role of being a religious or spiritual person. So it kind of feels messy in the field. The readings I've done, it seems like every field is trying to figure out like, here's how we should teach how we should teach it. Here's how we should do it in session. Here's how it's changing. Um, it's a dynamic area, spirituality, religion. And so a lot of the fields, a lot of the disciplines um, are doing it in different ways. It's not really streamlined is, um, is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. No, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's give people kind of, so we've got kind of a bird's eye view of this. Um, you're a person of faith. You're also a, an academic. Um, how did you, uh, this is what I find, so like faith formation and life experience. So how did, how did you go from being, you know, born in high school and college? And how did you get from there to being kind of where you are today, just kind of as a person of faith working in kind of an academic research and teaching area? Because I think for a lot of people, those two are kind of separate. You kind of don't, you kind of leave, you know, your, your spirituality at home with you. Um, or, you know, some people kind of take it with them, but it doesn't really play out in a whole very explicit ways, or at least they might say explicit. Um, so kind of what's been your faith journey along with your research? Cause this, cause you seem to kind of have uh, your field kind of tends to at least on the surface, kind of bring the two together, at least in a way of, like you said, dynamically trying to integrate them. So what's kind of been your faith journey along with your academic career? What's, what's kind of behind the story there? Small question, real small quick, question, quick, of course, quick yes. answer. I'm sure I'll, yeah, three <laughs> seconds is all I need. Oh, excellent. Um, 
like quick overview of my own faith story. I was not raised in a religious home. Um, I was raised by a single father and I would often go stay with an aunt and uncle, his brother, um, and they were Christians. And so I would go to church with them. And at a young age, they came home one night and the babysitter said, you know, Jackie asked Jesus into her heart tonight. And they were like, huh? And so I guess the babysitter had had a conversation with me. I don't really remember that. But um, I became a Christian at that church, you know, did the, did the prayer, was involved in Sunday school, and then didn't really have anything to support it. You know, I, I didn't stay with those, that aunt and uncle a lot. My, my own dad remarried and my dad and stepmom didn't go to church. But in high school, I got involved in Youth for Christ. And then in college, I got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. And then towards the end of college, Campus Crusade for Christ wasn't really working for me anymore. And so then I got involved in a young adult kind of Presbyterian church group. And the big defining moment that really in some ways brought it all together was when I was a sophomore in college, my grandfather got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And because my dad had been a single father for a while, I was raised by my grandparents. I lived with them. My dad and I lived with them for a time. And so I really saw my grandmother as my mother and I saw my grandpa as um, he wasn't really my father, but I was very close to him. Mm-hmm. And so when my, and if you know anything about pancreatic cancer, they usually don't, don't diagnose it until it's very far along. The symptoms don't show up until it's very advanced. So he was given three months to live and he, he lived a few more weeks than that. Um, and at that time, my grandma asked me to move in with her and help take care of him. And so I moved in with her and it was a really rough time. My family was split in a lot of ways with that diagnosis. How much do we tell grandpa about his diagnosis, his prognosis? How much do we do? Do we put him on like, um, you know, kale and smoothies or do we let him eat a steak and potatoes? Like, how do we treat him at this point? Like, which are we going for cure? Are we going for a happy life? And so there was a lot of um, splitting in my family, a lot of um, conflict and, I kept hearing like illness brings you closer, illness brings you closer. And I was like, that is not my experience. It was bringing us closer in some ways, but really tearing us apart as a family and others. And our patriarch was weakening and um, it was causing a lot of stress in the family. And there was a family business involved as well. And he was head of that business. So there was a lot of stress. And um, about, uh, about a year after that, I was like, I really want to kind of redeem that situation, like give back, like do something with the pain, kind of redeem the pain that that situation caused. He, like I had said, he did die um, a few months after the diagnosis. And I ended up going to a camp for children with cancer. Um, I thought that was nice, like a cancer relationship. My grandpa had cancer. These children have cancer. I'll go. And I was just like a staff person. I cleaned toilets and helped make beds and swept floors. And, But I got to interact with these um, children, and it was really a young adult camp. So I think I was 23 at the time, and they were you know, 19. It wasn't a huge age difference. And that really touched me. At the end of that week, I said, how can I do this more? How can I work more with these children, with these people? And the people there said, move to Seattle. I I was in Missoula, Montana at the time. I was raised in Missoula, Montana, and Seattle's about eight hours away. They said, move to Seattle, work at Children's Hospital, and then come back and work for us. And I was like, okay, uh, sounds good. And I was a business major, going to take over my family business. And I changed my major to communication um, and relationship studies. And then I moved to Seattle. I started working for Children's Hospital. I did get a job there in the oncology unit. And then I actually got to be a part of a nonprofit. And it was part of the, uh, the big Presbyterian church in Seattle called University Presbyterian Church. And there was a nonprofit there for children with cancer. And I worked there 
And I was sitting, you know, I was like 22, 23, sitting in um, waiting rooms, hospital waiting rooms with mothers while their child got a treatment, got an MRI, and hearing these stories of them having to leave their husband home so their husband could pay the bills, keep insurance. They had to bring their sick child and their the siblings to that child to Seattle, a really big urban city. And they were coming from places like Montana, Idaho, Alaska. And they were really overwhelmed and telling me all these really terrible stories. And I thought, I have to be able to do something better than listening. Like I can listen, but I've got to be able to do something with these stories. And so that's really what um, prompted me to get then a master's in marriage and family therapy. That was a long story. No, it's a, it's a good story. And so it's almost as if, I mean, it, it sounds cliche to say, but it's almost um, uh, life experience plus faith kind of, I don't know what the right word is. It almost, it highlighted what was an issue for so many people that otherwise may not have been seen. I don't know if that makes any sort of sense. Yeah. Like really came together. Yeah. For me. And so that was a way of kind of redeeming not only what you went through and what seems like, I mean, I, my grandmother went through dementia and all this sort of stuff. And um, being able to, it sounds like at least not only, I mean, listening, I think is so critical. I mean, and you rightly pointed out, but there has to be something where it's like, here's a way to kind of maybe begin to move through this sort of thing. Like you said, I think the language you used was redeem the space or redeem the time. And I think that's so critical, especially for um, people of faith and just for everyone period, but especially for people of faith, because we, we do believe in time being redeemed and space being redeemed and creation and all that sort of stuff. But I think that's just a very powerful reminder for us just as the church and as people of faith to basically go, Hey, where, where are the needs? And you never know the need might just be just, right in front of you, you know, yeah. and I don't know, I find that so, so moving and so helpful. So thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. And then I'll, I'll just add real quickly, um, the master's program I chose was a religious institution. Um, it's Seattle Pacific University and it's oh, Methodist yeah. free. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went there for my master's and they have a medical family therapy track. And so they were like, you're, you're perfect for our medical family therapy program because you're interested in medical. And then another thing that brings it together is medical family therapy is all about like looking at the physical illness, but also the psychosocial impact. And it really incorporates spirituality because medical illness especially makes people consider sort of the meaning in life, their purpose in life. And not to say mental health issues like anxiety and depression don't make you question those big questions, but illness usually really does. Like if something is going wrong with your body, you really can't and start thinking about death and dying or just bigger picture. And so spirituality is really incorporated into um, the medical aspect of medical family therapy, more so than even just traditional marriage and family therapy. Um, so there's a little bit of a distinction there. So that medical part, that spiritual part, um, that family therapy part all really come together nicely in my specialization and in my life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now you went on and got your PhD. Yeah. How, how did that happen? That is sort of a, it's not a total departure from the story, but um, in, so it was weird. Sometimes I'm like, how did I get to be a professor? I really didn't, I really wasn't on that track. But sometimes in classes, I would say, oh, this professor is really good at this. I should write this down in case I ever am a professor. And I remember thinking that, but it really was not on my mind to like get a PhD, do this thing. And then I actually did some presentations because I was a part of that nonprofit in Seattle and I'd be up front and sometimes I'd totally flub and sometimes I'd do great. And a couple of times I had people come up to me and say, have you ever thought about being a professor? And I was 
very insecure at the time. And I was like, uh, no, there's no way I'm smart enough or good enough to be in front of people or teach people. Like it was really, didn't really connect. Um, but then I met my current husband or my only husband, my husband, um, <laughs> Dan's going to be like, who's, who was before me? Um, met my current husband. Um, and he was moving to North Carolina to get a graduate degree in creative writing um, or an MFA, Master of Fine Arts with a specialty in creative writing. And I decided to go with him. I had worked a long time in Seattle and wanted a change. And I was telling my um, mentors from my master's program, I had graduated, but was letting them know I was moving to North Carolina for a year or whatever. And they were like, oh my gosh, there's a perfect PhD program down there for you. It's a PhD in medical family therapy. Our friends are the program directors. It's an hour from where you're moving. You have to go. And I was like, uh, thanks for the tip, but no, like that's not what I'm thinking. I'm going to move back to Seattle in a year and continue on with my life. And I got down there and it just so happened that, um, some laws had passed that really prevented me from practicing as a marriage and family therapist. And so I was in the, stuck in these jobs that were very unfulfilling and trying to figure out what to do. And one day at lunch, I like applied for the PhD program. I was just like, I'd had enough. I put in my application. It's the quick one, the early application, not the involved one. And I, I um, had dinner with Dan that night, my husband, and I was like, well, I applied to a PhD program today. And he was like, oh, okay. Um, and it really kind of went from there. It wasn't really planned out it happened but now when I look back I'm like this is the perfect job for me like I ended up in like such a perfect place for me and that's a that's a really lovely thing because so many things in my life I plan and I push for and in some ways this just sort of happened um and it's just kind of a it's a fun story I think yeah back to um the whole idea of of that the uh, anxiety and all of those things don't necessarily cause you to question your faith, but physical illness is more likely to cause you or life-threatening kinds of, okay, could you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. So I think that's a, a generalization. I don't mean to say that like, right, right. Yeah. if you have another um, challenge in life, it doesn't cause you to do that. But a lot of illnesses really, you know, bring up the limits of your body. And if you have limits to your body, you potentially have limits to your lifespan, you know? And so I think just when anything goes wrong with the body, we kind of think, well, what's going to happen to me? Um, am I going to live a full life? Am I going to be able to do the things I want to do with this body? Is this body going to take me to the places I want it to go? So I think it's more common to question why me? Why did I get this? And what am I going to do with my life? Um, and how will my life work out for me? And so um, I have been drawn, you know, to cancer and especially pediatric oncology. And so after I graduated from my PhD program, I did a postdoc at Johns Hopkins in pediatric palliative care. So that was end of life care for children for the most part. And, mm. um, and I, I did my dissertation on neonatal palliative care. So sort of babies born dying. So I've always really been drawn to like the darkness to those dark kind of can almost feeling hopeless and really a lot of suffering places. And so those places, especially if we're talking about cancer and illnesses that really are um, life threatening or life limiting, then there are a lot of questions about what do we do with the life we have left. And so I've always been really drawn to those places and those those medical staff, those medical, those medical team members, the people who work in that population 
are all like, feel like my people. They're all very dedicated to kind of quality of life of patients and thinking about these bigger questions and sitting with suffering. And they're usually all very spiritual people and very committed to compassion and empathy and understanding. And um, I think they're all a very lovely bunch of people that are working in that end of life, kind of life limiting illness domain. Mm -hmm. Uh, what what would you say is going on now as people are dealing with the COVID-19 and many of us are staying home or transitioning our jobs to, to work from home and all of that? We're hearing the news, numbers that are, I, I think, beyond our comprehension in terms of people who are sick and people who are dying. Uh, and unless we're actually hanging out in hospitals, I don't know that we even have any concept of what the medical people right now are going through. What are you thinking about all of that? And uh, how does that connect with uh, the kinds of things you think about? To bring it back to like spirituality and family therapy, one of the main things I try to do in the course is to try to teach students that some of the kind of cliches or phrases that we often use can really kind of alienate or other clients. So if you kind of even start to say, so, so the thing I've been thinking about recently is a lot of the media and a lot of things we're saying, I think to comfort ourselves is um, we're all in this together. And on one hand, that's really true. We're all in this together. We've never been more in this together. You know, it's a global pandemic, like so countries, people groups, we are united in sort of this, in this um, effort to respond to this illness that's threatening us, right? So we are truly all in this together. And yet, we're really not. Mm -hmm. We are alone in this and we are experiencing our very own unique response. And some of us are safe and secure. Um, we have the security and privilege of a job, of healthcare, of loved ones who are not in danger. Um, and some of us are thrown into the sort of the center of the pain. And we are either working with people who are dying or our loved ones are dying or we have lost so much. We've lost loved ones, our jobs, our securities, our homes, our whatever. And so I think that's what I'm thinking about is that we're all in such different places that we're really not experiencing it all together. And then also individually, we, in some ways, it's nice. It's nice to be home. It's nice to have a break. And also it's terrifying. Like, what about my life? What about my job? What about my future? It's like our own experience is on this like really wild spectrum. So I'm finding it really kind of, I think, interesting to even define how are we doing because it can feel like we're all experiencing the same thing, but it's very unique to everyone. And I think what I've heard from medical team members is just some pictures of what they're having to deal with is one, I've heard that for patients, it feels like you're drowning if you're dying from COVID-19 because you can't get air into your lungs. And so imagine feeling like your final feelings are drowning. Uh, that sounds really traumatic. That sounds traumatic to witness for healthcare workers to be witnessing someone. They're used to, they have a very fix it mentality, like, let me fix it. And if they can't fix it, they can sometimes take that very personal um, and that they failed that patient, even though it's not them personally, it's the, it's the illness, it's the, the hospital structure, the supplies, if they didn't have the right supplies or whatever, but they can take that very personally. And these patients are dying alone in the hospital um, or suffering alone. If they do make it out of the hospital, they're suffering alone. They can't have family members there with them. You know, medical folks are covered. They can't show their faces. They can't show their empathy. 
And then I've, I've heard some of them are trying their best to facilitate conversations between a patient who may be dying from COVID and family members, trying to get family members on the phone, online, um, and trying to facilitate a conversation that they are not trained to facilitate. And um, I just can't imagine the, the burden that they're feeling and that the suffering that they're experiencing being in, in the midst of that. And it's, it's almost a sense of, um, I mean, it almost feels trivial to call it genuine, but it's like genuine powerlessness, that feeling of there is literally nothing that can or could be done. I, I cannot imagine not only the trauma that goes along with that, but the anxiety that this will probably or could happen again. Right. And, just, and just living with that, for lack of a better word, the sword of Damocles kind of sw- preparing to swing over your head. I mean, not only for our, our healthcare workers and our essential workers, just for people in, in general. It's like, I mean, I've, um, we have people at church, uh, family members that have gone through this. I see on Facebook and all that sort of stuff, friends and family. And it's one of those, you're, you're not, it almost feels like there is kind of that survival instinct where you kind of, instead of, as you said, kind of being able to reach out and kind of exhibit empathy and compassion, it almost is, it almost kind of forces us to kind of turn and concretize, become survivalistic almost to the extent the where we push others away. And I'm wondering if just this whole ordeal is just one big traumatic ball of, oh my gosh, what is, how, how do we, I mean, just at the end of the day, it, it's a huge question. I don't have the answer to it, but how, what, cause this is normal now. This is what is going to be normal for a very long time for a lot of people. And I'm wondering maybe just in terms of anxiety, um, obviously we can't tell America or the world to take a chill pill. That's, you know, that's, that's we can, we can, it's not very helpful. Uh, No, it's not very helpful. (laughs) Uh, Some people could use a chill pill, but it's not, it's not good to say that to everyone, but I'm wondering just as a way of maybe, maybe, maybe polishing the crystal ball a little bit, but as maybe we finally, by God's grace kind of science and all that, we kind of begin to move out of this, right? We've, we begin to kind of reintegrate, I guess maybe would be the right word. Um, what do you see are some things that, not necessarily the church per se, although we can talk about the church, but us as, as a people, how can we begin to be preemptive um, in relating to anxiety and trauma and, and depression, all the other isolation stuff that comes along? Because I mean, as an introvert, as someone who's very introverted, I've really missed being able to hug my, my church family. Like I'm, I'm, I can hug my cat, I can hug my newborn, I can hug my wife, but it's like, I, I genuinely miss hugging people at church, you know, those sorts of things. So I'm wondering just in light of coming out of this, what, what are some ways you think we can kind of maybe lessen the impact or at least, at least what can we be aware of as we kind of move through this time, especially, you know, fam- whether, you know, people are single or, or they have families, you know, just what, what do you see maybe polishing the crystal ball in that sense? No a very small question, of course, very yeah, small question. No okay. I guess I've been thinking sort of that difference of how people are making sense of it, being mindful that we're all making sense of it differently. Because I think if we are being told we're in this together, we're really united in this, it almost then makes you think, well, we should be reacting the same or the same ish. And so I think Hmm. preparing for how different people are going to respond, even if we take the example of like the healthcare workers, I think if you feel called to be um, a nurse or a doctor and you feel called to help with suffering and that's why you became a doctor or a nurse um, or a, a radiation technologist or whatever, it's like, then this is meaning making for you. Then you're like, wow, I am called and I'm here and I'm doing the thing I feel 
meant that I'm meant to do. And that's a lot of meaning. And that can help sort of mediate your anxiety, kind of help calm you down because you're, you're choosing to be there. It's fulfilling meaning for you. Some people are not um, in medicine for those reasons. They're in it for, it's a good salary. It's a stable job. They were good in chemistry or in biology. And so it made sense for them. And now they're maybe being forced to go to work and they don't want to be at work and they don't want to be putting themselves in harm's way. This is not what they signed up for and they're being forced to go to work. Um, or, you know, there's a spectrum or they um, are being forced to go to work, but they're then, we've, we're hearing these stories, they're going home and infecting their family members or at risk of affecting their family members if they get infected at work. Yeah. So those are all different ways of making meaning of the same experience, right? A healthcare worker working in the midst of COVID-19, some people will have a lot of resilience for the trauma they're experiencing because it's, it makes meaning for them. It, it makes them feel valuable. It makes them feel worthwhile. Um, and some, it makes them feel invaluable. Like nobody cares about them. They're just making them go do this. Nobody cares what it's doing to them. Nobody cares what it's doing, how it's risking their family. And so you just have such huge differences in how people are experiencing this. And that's what we'll see in all of our experiences too. If we've had a history, it's sort of funny. It sounds like if we, if people have had a history with anxiety or in our like in treatment and trying to work on their anxiety, a lot of them seem to be doing pretty well at a time like this because they've learned the coping skills and they can sort of say, well, this is just another thing um, for me to address. But um, then some people are, are having really bad bouts of anxiety or depression in response to this. And so I think it, we're all going to respond differently based on our experiences, our experiences with trauma, our abilities to cope, the meaning um, we make out of this, the resources we have, whether it's financial, emotional, social, spiritual. Um, we're just all going to look so different and do such different things that I think I'm curious too. What it, What is it going to do for all of us individually? But what main things will kind of coalesce and what will we see? Will, will we be more scared coming out of this? Will we feel triumphant coming out of this? I mean, I know it'll be a mixture, but sometimes there's like a, a primary theme that shows up or a couple primary responses and that I don't really know. But I think some people will come out ready to hug and some people will come out being like, I don't know if I want to hug. I don't know if I want to shake a hand. I don't know if I, I don't know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What, what would you say to somebody, what should we be doing right now to be taking care of our our spirits or taking care of ourselves, um, you know, psychologically and uh, what are the kinds of things we should be doing now? Well, the spiritual question is yours, you know, yeah. you guys are the <laughs> experts like, Hey, hold on a second. Okay. I have some ideas. But. <laughs> um, oh boy. This is a, it's a COVID-19 podcast. Um, well, yeah. What to do to take care of ourselves. I actually just wrote a blog for, Loma Linda. It's not finalized yet, but it was, so, I was talking about, I guess what, what I think of is all the feelings we're experiencing. Sometimes feelings, especially in the United States, we have a tendency to want to be positive. Sometimes in the church, even we have a tendency to want to be positive and hopeful, hope in God. And sometimes that is a really great message. And we have moments where we want to be positive and it helps us to think about what can help us be positive right now, what can help us be hopeful. Mm. But it needs to be balanced with acknowledging the suffering and acknowledging the other feelings that um, can be coming along. And so I think if a feeling is usually telling us that we need something, sometimes a feeling like joy or happiness, we may not have a need, we just have, it's a feeling that we're having. But feelings like sadness, that's usually a need for... Um, 
I need some comfort. Or feelings of loneliness, that's a need for, I need connection. Um, feelings of anger, that's a need for, I need to express. Something's been wronged and I need to express myself or express that wrong often. So a lot of these emotions um, that we're experiencing are needs that our body is letting us know that we have. And if you can kind of tune in to those emotions and see them as needs of like, oh, I'm sad right now, I'm angry right now, I'm whatever, accept that that's your emotion right now and see if there is something you can do to address that need. So if you are angry, is there something? Can you express to a friend about how you're angry? Can you express your anger through um, exercise or dancing or writing something out or you know, whatever, like, can you address these needs? And it can be a small thing in that moment. But that's really if your body is telling you, you know, through emotions that it has these needs, if you can try to listen to it, and do something that can help. But I also yeah. want to say, there's so many emotions coming at a time like this that, um, and we don't always know what to do. We don't always have a good idea. And some, I think, hard emotions just need to be endured, um, that they're there. And there's no quick way to address their need or to address them in that moment. And that's where we turn to sort of what do we do with longstanding suffering? And I think that is where spirituality um, can, can come in and can be helpful. Yeah. It's been interesting um, what little bit I've been listening to, like on the radio and, and everything today. There was a, a man who was coming from the Muslim faith making reference to the Buddhist faith, <laughs> but also something that's very much a part of uh, Christianity. And, and uh, in Buddhism, it's called mindfulness. Um, he quoted a Muslim poet and said, uh, having your mind be where your feet are. I think also for us, the idea of uh, as Christians, um, practicing the presence of Christ and being in the moment, you know, at times I think we need to let go of all of the, all of the stuff that's around us that's saying, well, what's going to happen next? What's, you know, what should I be doing? What should, you know, how am I going to be prepared, prepared for the next thing? And, and those of us who are in different kinds of professions where we're now having to think about how is everything changing? What are we going to have to do next? I mean, we have moments where we have to do that, but I think we have to have moments where we step back and go, step back and go, okay, I'm going to now just sort of exist in the present and um, deal with what I have to in this moment in the present and just let the other thing, the other things will be there when I get back to them. But, mm -hmm. but, but for this moment, I need to, you know, be in the present and be discovering, uh, well, finding, finding the strength, you know, and, and all of that but also the quiet and letting go of all of those voices going on. And maybe I'm just telling you all about my problems right now, but, uh, but anyway, that, that was interesting to hear how all these different faiths come together and address that, that, that same kind of thing. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is a, a popular view, but I remember in my master's program, I went in, you know, thinking it was at a religious institution that every class would have, you know, we'd be talking about Jesus and in all these classes and we really weren't. And I was like, wait, I thought this was a Christian university. I thought all these classes would be about family therapy and um, Christianity. And I asked the program director, I kind of said like, where's, 
where's Jesus? Um, there was one class that was like Christianity and family therapy, sort of an integration class, but um, the other ones, it wasn't really present. And, and, and so that was hard. That's hard to grapple with when you're trying to integrate, I think, both your sort of psychotherapy training and your personal spirituality, you're used to answering questions through your faith, through your spirituality, through what God is doing, through what you're, what you're being told how to cope with life through the Bible. And then you get this whole other education and then it's up to you to kind of integrate that. And so, like I was saying, lots of people aren't integrating that. Um, and then when you are trying to do it, it is tricky because both kind of domains of knowledge can have different answers. Um, but what my program director said when I asked about sort of the where's God in therapy, her answer, which I really liked, was God is a non-anxious presence. And when we're anxious, when we're scared, when we're angry, when we're whatever, whenever we can reach sort of this, and it's kind of can be in mindfulness, a calm state of mind um, usually makes us feel better. And to reach out to a God who is not anxious, um, is steady, uh, that can help us kind of bring us some peace because we can reach out to someone who is constant, kind of constantly at peace. Mm -hmm. And so I, I liked that idea of, of seeing um, God in that way. And I think that's like the universalism of how a God or all these different religions and spiritualities, many of them are trying to get to a calm place. And so a lot of them include a way to calm yourself, um, a way to get perspective. And so I, I do think they have similarities. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's interesting. Just um, you, you mentioned a little while back about um, almost, uh, I'm putting words in your mouth, of course, but kind of the dark night of the soul, right? You, there is a time where you're just there and kind of taking what Sean said and what you said, it's, it's not as if, and kind of, I, I think in American culture, at least Christianity, we kind of tend to try and, like you said, put a, a posit positive spin on everything. It's like, well, like, don't put a positive spin when this really bad thing is happening. Just, it's kind of like, uh, for all the bad advice Job's friends gave, they at least went and sat with him for a week and sat in the dirt with them, you know? And so um, for me, I, in listening to all this and kind of reflecting on it, something I've found very meaningful personally throughout this experience is reading the Psalms and not the nice Psalms, you know, just the Psalms that are angry, you know, why God this, why God that? And I'm just sitting there reading them and I'm kind of reflecting. I'm like, you know, I, I could be reading really nice things right now. Um, could be watching really nice movies, playing with my son, but it almost as if for me, it's almost a way of saying other people like me have gone through this dark night of the soul. Other people like me, men and women, you know, enemies, everyone has gone through this sort of this, the, the, the veil of darkness, as, as they say. And that almost for me, and I don't imagine it's for everyone, of course, but for me, almost knowing that, you know, Jesus went through this, everyone we know in life has gone through this there's a sense almost of peace for me in that I'm not going in this alone. Now it may feel like it, uh, but just putting one step in front of the other and recognizing that, Hey, look, other people like me have gone through this and they've made it through. And it doesn't mean it was easy or wonderful or, you know, it's not a Hallmark movie, but at the end of the day, it's like, there is that anticipation, which leads to, which gives us hope, but it's not as if we kind of take a hope pill and just kind of sit and grit our teeth. And I'm very hopeful right now. This is really good. We're, we're just feeling great. And I think for a lot of people, it's like, no, don't. And I think maybe you're getting, don't kind of shunt your emotions off to the side and let them fester because that it sounds like it eventually will just begin to eat at you. But it's like, be, let's exhibit emotional health. Let's actually you know, don't sit in despair of it, but actually address them and, and think about them. And um, maybe something you were getting was have other people you can talk to about them, people that you trust. Um, I don't know, for me, that's been very, very helpful, just a way of knowing 
too, that whatever I'm going through, someone else has gone through it and whatever they've gone through, they can help get me through it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I sometimes say like, you want to visit those feelings, but you don't want to stay there. But sometimes in like US culture, we don't even want you to visit those feelings. It's like, mm-hmm. no, don't, don't feel that. Just go do this. And, um, mm-hmm. but you do want to visit them. And sometimes you sit with them for a long time. Um, but we don't want to sit with them always forever. There is something about, you know, doing something else and going on moving towards something else in your life. It made me think of one other thing when, when you were talking is like, I think we all do reach for God in different ways, or if we're just talking within our kind of our Christian God, um, but a lot of people are reaching for all sorts of their, their God or their meaning in all sorts of different ways. But if we're talking about like within Christianity, I think a lot of people reach God to God for um, comfort in different ways. And so some may hmm. see God as like the creator of everything. He's going to sort of redeem things at the end. It's all in his hands. It's like a way to give responsibility to someone else. Hmm. And some people, um, find meaning in like doing something for others because they're called to serve others. And so that's their way of finding peace. And some people kind of, I think sound like what you were saying, Nick, is some people look to others who have suffered that Jesus has suffered. And so there's a likeness that we can kind of bond with in suffering and that we will come through this. Others have come through suffering. So I think that's interesting too, that sometimes we think we're all like hope in God, I think means so many things to so many people. And Mm. that's something I've been wrestling with right now. It's like, what am I actually hoping in God for? Because I'm hearing that. That's another message I'm getting, I think, from the Christian world in a time like now is, oh, you know, we're, we're, maybe we're lucky, or we should hope in God. And I'm like, oh, that's complicated, because I, I, I don't, from all my work, I think, with children with cancer and lots of children, I've been to way more children's funerals than I have been to adult funerals at this point in my life. I've seen so many children be prayed for by earnest, faithful people, um, and, and they have died at the same rates as pe- you know, children not being prayed for. So that, that kind of idea of a God who's going to rescue or save or heal or protect, that's just not the God I have anymore. It's really hard for me to see mm-hmm to see God in that way that God's really going to protect us. The God I have kind of suffers with us and that gives me comfort that he suffers um, alongside us. He, he loves us, but that's a different kind of comfort that I get than someone else might get from a belief in God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think sometimes it's all of those things though, that the idea that God really does in the end, you know, there, there is hope, there is victory, there's, but not being able to completely uh, understand that with all that we are, you know, it maybe exists in a certain part of our, our, of our head or our heart. And so then we, we go to the other two things that you say. Uh, one of them is that we recognize that there's a God who not only is this, there's a sort of this future kind of idea uh, in the context of eternity, but, but that we have a God that sits with us and feels what we're feeling and identifies with us and comforts us and, and, and all of those things that you, you said. And then what do we do now? Well, what do we do now? We, we're about the work that God wants us to do. And so, so I, 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 I wonder, maybe, it, maybe as people, we tend to turn to one of those things first, but, but that kind of is a holistic way of, of dealing with suffering and the, and the difficult things. So. Yeah. Sort of many ways to access God or access the comfort of God. Right. Through thinking, right. feeling, doing. Yeah. 
Uh, and as a as kind of a, a, a parting thought, you, you do a lot of work and in integrative stuff in the classroom as it relates to marriage and family therapy and all of this sort of stuff. Can you can you give us just kind of a not only the the meaning of it for you, but also uh, the necessity of it? Like what? How does that all kind of work together for you as kind of a person who has a vocation, who has a calling and a gift? for all of this, but is also a person of faith. How does that, how does that work for you in the classroom? You know, it's funny. When I got the job at Loma Linda University, um, I had known um, various Seventh-day Adventists in my life, and one of my professors from Seattle Pacific was a Seventh-day Adventist, and I loved her and really modeled a lot of my life after her. And so I really didn't give it too much thought to go to a Seventh-day Adventist institution, and I actually like working with for religious institutions. You know, I worked for that big Presbyterian church. I like working for big institutions. I worked for hospitals. I kind of I'm drawn to that. So I felt good about taking the job. And then on my course load was the spirituality practicum. And I was like, uh, everyone knows I'm not Seventh-day Adventist, right? I mean, I, should I be the one teaching the spirituality practicum at a Seventh-day Adventist institution? Um, but I was encouraged, like, it's not, you know, about us um, promoting Seventh-day Adventism. It's really about integrating spirituality with therapy. So I was a little, you know, hesitant. And then I also thought like, gosh, I don't know, you know, even just some of the the things I was saying to you guys of my own belief in God has really been shaped by deep suffering by children with cancer and, and working with them. And that's really kind of taken away some of those really things that I loved about God, you know, that he would protect, that he could heal, that he would really be there. I think I lost some of that in that journey, but I had to deepen my faith and change it in different ways. But I also was like, oh, I don't know if I'm the kind of spiritual person that maybe this group needs because I have a lot of questions and a lot of gray areas. And, but I found through teaching the course that I mean, not that I'm the perfect person, but I feel like I'm a really good fit. I've gotten a lot of feedback from students at how much they appreciate the things I say and how I talk with them. And our student body at Loma Linda is really mixed. We have Seventh-day Adventists who themselves can um, be on a spectrum from sort of, you know, conservative to liberal or whatever words we want to use for that. And then we have atheists. We have um, like lapsed Catholic is like a pretty... Um, large group sometimes that we have, like people who used to be Catholic, and then Christians of all, you know, denominations. And so one of the things I do on the first day is I just start asking them spiritual questions, like, do you believe in God? What happens when we die? What's the meaning of life? Just really general, because first I have to get them talking about this very personal area of their life that you, yeah. you find that you usually only talk about your spiritual life with your spiritual community. Um, yeah. You're not necessarily talking about your spirituality with people who don't align with you, who aren't in your community. So these therapists come in and I get them started talking about spirituality and it's uncomfortable. I call it the first day class awkward conversation because it's super awkward. No one really wants to talk about it. And then the second class, we kind of go more into their own personal story. And the biggest thing I found is the first day they sound very sure of like, oh, well, I'm a this. I believe that. I believe this. And I've learned that by, by week two, they've done some more readings. I asked them to do like a personal spiritual journey. It's a lot fuzzier week two. Uh, week one, it sounds like they all know what they're talking about. And week two, they're like, gosh, when I did this sort of personal journey and thought through my spirituality, it's like, oh, who am I now? Where am I now? And I'm just like, week one, I'm sort of telling you the answers that I've always told that I grew up thinking. And so week two, almost they get a little unsteady of like, oh, I don't know what I'm thinking anymore. And, um, and I really try to emphasize like, 
that's okay. That's real spirituality. That's, that's the real life way this works is that it's not just always we have it down pat. We know exactly what we think and our, 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 our beliefs, our values, our ways of seeing things can shift um, daily. They can shift moment by moment. And so to sort of have this idea that I, I think that your faith or spirituality is like locked in, you finally know exactly what you believe is false and is not helpful. And really the flexibility, the fluidity to say, um, some days I believe, some days I don't. Um, I really loved Rachel Held Evans and what she added to that conversation because she was one who would really be open about her doubts and that some days she believed and some days she didn't. And she'd had this lovely way of saying like, on the days I believe, this is what I think. And that resonated with me because I have those days where I believe and those days that I don't. And if I'm asked to hide those days that I don't or to not acknowledge those days, I can feel very lonely. And so I think for students, I really try to emphasize like this is a journey and the best thing you can do is be okay with where you are. And if where you are is really uncertain in a real gray area, that's okay. But to be calm um, with what your own spirituality is, is going to set you up to talk to others about theirs. Because if you feel a lot of guilt about yours or, um, or shame, or, or if you feel like it's locked tight and you know exactly what is right or wrong and someone else has a very different spirituality or way of seeing things, you're going to get unsettled and not be able to do your best professional work. So I think what I bring to that class is sort of an acceptance of wherever you are is okay. Um, and that that's a realistic kind of faith, spiritual journey is to have it. It's kind of messy. And so I have really loved the class and gotten a lot of feedback. And really that paper came out of so many students telling me how great it was. I was like, well, if they're telling me it's that great, maybe I should publish something and share it kind of with the world, with the family therapy world, because these students are telling me I've changed their life. I've, um, I brought them back to church. Some of them, you know, maybe they left church because they're like, I finally realized it's not for me. And I needed to tell my parents that. So they've had all sorts of their own reactions. And some of them say they do, they think they do true therapy now, because now that they ask about spirituality, um, they're not afraid to go into that area then they feel like they get really meaningful conversations and really a deeper um, understanding of people. And so they say, now I wasn't even doing therapy before until I started asking about these meaning-making ways and spirituality and whatever. So it's really been this surprise class that um, I thought I wasn't equipped for, I wasn't ready for. And then it seemed like in my sort of uncertainty and, you know, unsure about my own fit. It's like that, some of that was the best gift I could give was being uncertain and trying to let them know it's okay to be uncertain too. Yeah. I, I, as a campus minister, that was something that I actually really enjoyed because when you get to that stage, then people are being really honest about where they are because they're there, whether they talk about it or not, or whether they give those answers or not, it's not like you throw them into that stage. Um, uh, they're there. It's they're there because that's natural. And then once you're able to acknowledge it, be okay with being in that place. That's when you can continue to grow. And so, yeah, that's, that's really exciting work. Yeah, and it's, it's something I, I, I thought this would be a lot less, but in your, your paper, you mentioned that uh, I think it was about 80% of Americans uh, well, I, I forget the language you use, but I, but I think it was identify spirituality. I think it's 80% of Americans identify their spirituality as, as either vital or integral to the part of their lives. So it's not as if this sort of question doesn't have deep ramifications for just daily life. I mean, 
how you treat people, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you drive even, you know, just ways of, you know, and if you look at how I drive, I'm not a very nice person in real life, but we'll, we'll leave that aside. But I, I think, I, I think a lot of, there is that kind of idea of we're not entering a, an age uh, in all of this kind of thing. I don't think we're entering an age where spirituality is going away. In fact, I think it's becoming more um, vital more important. And I think a lot more people are beginning to kind of reassess and reflect and, and, and think about this. Um, it's not as if atheism or evangelical Christianity are, are on the rise per se. In fact, you see a little bit of a lessening with that. But I think a lot of people at the end of the day are just getting a little more curious about our world and, and how the world is and how the world can be interpreted. And I think um, with marriage and family therapy and, and your vocation and leadership in that area, I think the right questions asked will cause a lot of people who were not that curious to begin asking really good questions about their lives. I agree. I think people now, and probably maybe for a long time, have just need, need more flexibility. Like the rigid belief systems don't work for a lot of people. And so when it's you're in or you're out, it just doesn't draw in a lot of people but if there's room um for flexibility for like yeah days of belief days of unbelief um or whatever it's like people are more able to be themselves and then they're yeah more comfortable more interested in being present thank you for listening to the faith without fear podcast a ministry of the first baptist church of redlands california Our music was composed and written by Garrett Zambros. If you're looking for a church's home in the midst of COVID-19 and the stay-at-home order, we encourage you to join us online. You can find us on YouTube and our website at www.fbcredlands.org.